Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast, where you can learn how to improve your diet, lose fat, and get fitter in a sustainable and fun way without spending hours in the gym. Here is your host, Darren Kirby. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is the number one podcast for men in their 40s who want to improve their health through nutrition and fitness. This is episode 118, and on today's episode, we're going to be speaking about brain health with Dean and Aisha Shirazi. Dean and Aisha are both neuroscientists. Dr. Dean is a behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist whose life has been dedicated to behavioral change models at the community and population level. Dr. Aisha focuses on preventative medicine and neurology. She also holds a master's in advanced sciences. Aisha teaches large populations how to make tasty, easy and healthy food for their brain health. But before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment to mention the show's sponsors, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens was created by its founder, Chris, after years of gut health issues that left him facing a health crisis with no solutions in sight. Despite his best efforts to maintain a balanced, nourishing diet, Chris's body struggled to absorb and synthesize nutrients. Now, as many of you know who listen, are regular listen to this podcast, I am a huge advocate of getting all of our vitamins and nutrients from good, nutritious, dense food. But in today's society and that today's fast-paced life, that is not always possible. So I personally take Athletic Greens as my nutrient insurance policy. It has 75 different vitamins, minerals, probiotics and prebiotics to ensure that you're getting the right daily dose. So for listeners of the podcast, Athletic Greens have got an offer for us. If you go over to athleticgreens.com forward slash fitter healthier dad, you can get 10% off your first order. Hey guys, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you, Darren? Yes, very well, thanks. Um, So guys, it's a very interesting topic that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, brain health and it's one which I personally am absolutely fascinated about I have nowhere near the depth of knowledge that you guys have um, which is why it's so great to talk to you today but for people that haven't come across you guys before particularly in the UK can you give us a bit of background on how you've become to where you're at today yeah um, so we both met 18 years ago um, far, far away um, while we were doing our service bit. We always, our life is partly research, partly adventure, yeah. partly service. Actually, okay. all, they're all always interconnected, yeah. those three yeah. elements. And we have two kids <clears throat> and we met in an adventure and, and trying to help another community uh, 8,000 miles away. And in a conversation, we were both doctors at the time. Right. I was building in a health a healthcare system of a country and um, I had just left NIH, National Institutes of Health, to go back and help. And Aisha had gone back with Doctors Without Borders. And during the conversation, we talked about our par- grandparents, who we had two on each side <clears throat> who had Alzheimer's. Right. And at the same time, our love of neuroscience. And um, that conversation when became de- several dates. Um, and then several <laughs> dates became much more. And then we married and we pursued research. 
And we went to the number one place in the world at the time, UCSD, <clears throat> and uh, we started the research program. And we decided we're going to take the path less traveled and not do the molecular, which is needed. <clears throat> it's very important, but it shouldn't be 100% of the work. Right. So we looked at prevention and we were the first neurologists. In fact, we coined the preventive neurology um, to start that whole process. And we picked Loma Linda to start our work. So Loma Linda right. University uh, is in Southern California. And we are the co-directors of the Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program, which means that we see patients in the hospital and in the clinic. We're also involved in research. But more importantly, uh, recently our work has been focusing on translation of all that information, the research, into the communities. How do people live a healthy life in order to avoid brain diseases and not just prevent diseases, but to live a cognitively vibrant life? Yeah. And I, I, I think that's so interesting because generally, I don't know what it's like in the US, but definitely in the UK, it's almost been like it's culturally accepted that when you get to a certain age, you're going to get either Alzheimer's or dementia. You know, that's just how life is. But I think what's really interesting about what you guys are doing is you're kind of saying, well, actually, let's look into this a little bit deeper. Does it have to be like this? And what can we do in earlier years? to prevent it. And I think this is for me where the, the medical industry, particularly in the UK needs to kind of evolve. And that is going towards the prevention instead of the trying to treat. So, um, yeah, I mean, we can go off in all sorts of different directions, but particularly around Alzheimer's then when you started this research, what was the kind of response that you got from the medical industry in general? Because traditionally it's been, we, as we've just said, it, we cure, we don't prevent. Was there any resistance around that? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, when we decided to uh, not go into the mainstream, uh, which is clinical trials and, and uh, things of that nature, uh, and, and when we first told our mentors um, that we we're going to go to Loma Linda and study epidemiology and lifestyle and, and prevention, they said it's suicide. Right. <clears throat> it's career suicide. Career suicide. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It was not to do it. And right. we said, um, you know, I didn't think you read our CVs. We take some risks. And <laughs> so we went there and, and, and what, what was, what came out of that was completely contrary to that. We, we, the, the research, the, the information that we found, uh, we think is probably paradigm shifting because mm -hmm. we yeah. say that 90% of Alzheimer's and dementia in general can be prevented. Now dementia is the umbrella category. Right. And Alzheimer's is a subtype, but 90% can be prevented under very, very ideal conditions, which is very hard to get. But, but even short of ideal conditions, a significant proportion. Now, initially, this was very controversial. Um, mm -hmm. We were actually ostracized and we were not, you know, people didn't speak. To. Now, everybody accepts that. Right. Everybody. Right. There's literally nobody that doesn't accept that. It's just the number. Some, the lowest number is one third uh, that can be prevented. Others say 60%. We see 90%, not because 90% can be achieved, because it has to be ideal early on and all of that stuff. But even if you do systematic lifestyle change, you will profoundly affect the, the landscape of cognition. Yeah, yeah. Why is that important? Because, first of all, we are our brain. Right. <clears throat> this is who we are. The rest of the vessel is just there to carry this. Right. We can, we can replace the heart and you're still the same person. We can replace... The kidney, you're still the same person. You replace the brain, you are that replaced brain. 
We yeah. are the brain. So it is yeah. who we are. It's the most important. The second reason is, is that it is by far the most devastating disease right. and the most expensive disease. Okay. Uh, I'm talking about the Alzheimer's and dementias. And, and if you include all of cognitive diseases, by far, just Alzheimer's, just Alzheimer's in US alone. Let me give you a perspective. Heart disease, which everybody hears about, which is very important. Second and most expensive disease at 120 billion. Right. Cancers, all combined, 70 billion. Just Alzheimer's, direct and indirect cost, $540 billion. Wow. And wow. that number is expected to rise to 1.1 trillion indirect cost, another probably 3 trillion direct cost, which will by itself collapse our system. That's why it's so important. Yeah. And, they, and it's, that's a fascinating <clears throat> statistic, to be honest, because you know, like I said before, you know, it's almost culturally accepted that Alzheimer's happens, dementia happens, right? But it's not culturally accepted that you get cancer, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and But you have to treat it, right? But then with these other neurodegenerative diseases, it's, it's almost like, well, that's the way life is, right? But you guys are saying, actually, no, that's not how life is. Um, and if you are aware in earlier years, you can actually... I guess, prevent or reduce the risk of that happening to you. So what were some of the biggest key factors that came out of your research when you started to look into this around lifestyle change? Yeah, so for a very long time, <clears throat> uh, most of the funding from research, whether it was NIH here in the United States or anywhere else around the world, was focused on identifying very, you know, molecular and cellular pathological changes in the brain. And for decades and decades, uh, people and scientists tended to focus on these two abnormal proteins called amyloid and tau and how it <clears throat> destroyed brain cells and caused the physical changes and the clinical manifestations of dimensions, particularly in Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, they, they tried to focus on this protein, they zapped it with lasers, they got rid of it with um, antibodies, so on and so forth. But um, scientists had a very hard time looking at the bigger picture of what really happens in life during lifetime to the brain structure that ended up in a person having cognitive impairment later on. And when you are um, an epidemiologist and you have a better understanding of disease patterns over a lifetime, um, many scientists, and particularly when we looked at it, there are so many factors in our midlife and even earlier life, as early as childhood, that determines the brain that we carry in our 70s, 80s, 90s, right. and beyond. Right. And that perspective was not understood, and that was not very highlighted. I guess it wasn't sexy enough for people to look yeah. at the bigger spectrum of, of health and the impact of lifestyle on brain health. So when we went into this field, we realized that people who had better cardiovascular health, say, for example, they okay. didn't have high blood pressure, they didn't have cholesterol, they had very good uh, glucose metabolism, they tended to have lower risk of developing dementia. So uh, we came up with four particular pathways. These pathways determined brain health and health in general. Mm. These are inflammation, oxidation, glucose dysregulation, and lipid or fat dysregulation. Right. And these four processes are brought on by things like the food we eat, whether right. we exercise or not, 
how much stress we uh, we carry and how do we process stress, whether it's mm -hmm. good or bad, um, <clears throat> whether we keep our minds active throughout our lives. In research, education is considered as a proxy for cognitive health. But even when people keep their minds in challenging and complex activities, that actually benefits them quite a lot. And um, of course, things like sleep, you know, do we have sleep yeah. deprivation? What are our sleep patterns? And so all of these things matter. So mm. during our work and when we wrote our first book, The Alzheimer's Solution in 2017, we came up with an acronym, self-serving acronym called NEURO. N-E-U-R-O, yeah. N stands for nutrition, E stands for exercise, U stands for unwind or stress management, R stands for restorative sleep, and O stands for optimizing cognitive activity. Right, and right. when you apply a very comprehensive, multifaceted, healthy lifestyle as early as possible, mm -hmm. people tend to have lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. 90, we say 90% of Alzheimer's disease can be prevented. Of okay. course, there was a time about, I, I would say, what, 10, 15 years ago, when this was not an accepted fact, like you said, yeah. we would go to, um, you know, uh, Alzheimer's Association conferences, or for example, any dementia conference, and it was molecular, molecular imaging, 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 which was important, but just way too much focus on that. But then slowly and gradually, they said, yes, there is, you know, there is some evidence that lifestyle matters. And then, you know, seven years ago, they said, well, lifestyle can reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 30%. And then a few years later, they said 60%, which was right. incredible. And so um, I'm happy that Dina and I were ahead of the curve because we realized this pattern earlier on and it's becoming more and more acceptable and it's actually getting into the guidelines of addressing these lifestyle factors as early as possible in life. Yeah. And, and again, whilst this is such a complex topic and I guess illness, the I guess the preventative steps for me as a as a layman come comes back to kind of basic stuff. Right. It's like like you say, it's lifestyle factors. It's good nutrition. It's moving the body, um, you know, and things like that. The, the whole cognitive stress, not stressing the brain, but keeping the brain active, keeping it challenged. <laughs> So you, 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 your little electrical circuits inside the brain keep firing and wiring together. Um, but I, I find that whilst you and I on this podcast might be talking about this, generally in the wider population, there still seems to be this culture whereby if it's an illness, it's pharmaceuticals that need to fix it, right? So I don't know what it's like in the US, but how do you see that being overcome. And I know this is a quite a sensitive and a deep topic when we talk about pharmaceuticals, but how do you see that transition changing? <clears throat> well, um, it's, it's not just pharmaceutical, it's the easy way out. Right. And, and, and there is a place for easy way out, not so much easy way out, the urgent addressing of the urgent matter. Mm. Uh, if somebody has a cholesterol of 400, you're not gonna wait for you know, a plant-based diet to correct that. You're not going to. You shouldn't. You might want to. That's your choice, but it's wrong thing to do. Okay, Medicine okay. must come on board, must address it urgently, and then lifestyle should take over. If somebody just had a stroke, you can't wait for lifestyle to take over. If there's a clot to be removed, the clot needs to be removed. If there's anticoagulation that needs to be placed, that needs to be placed. We really, we cannot be binary. And, and, and at the core of this problem is binary approach to life. Even in the lifestyle world, people who have actually, you know, pushed away pharmaceutical, then on this side, they jump to the binary again, mm, whether yeah. it's the 
uh, it's the biohacking and the superfood and super pill of the day or super thing of the day yeah. or it's the fact that all this is bad and all this is good it's yeah. not you have to become in, in fact there was somebody who said on uh, on on internet um, uh, uh, that the problem of our societies is that we can't get comfortable with complexity we keep yeah. using concepts like oh it's common sense Astrophysics is not common sense. Molecular yeah. biology is not common sense to even even though we have you know a degree. No, nope, it's not. So we have to get comfort with a little bit of complexity, which is where there is need for pharmaceutical and urgent situations. That's a that's a must. Yeah. <clears throat> but long term, there must be a a different approach, which is lifestyle matters and complexity matters. Even in lifestyle, it's not. It's not um, the the removal of one thing or the addition of one thing. Yeah, it's a yeah. more concerted multilateral approach over time. That's difficult to sell, as you know this. I mean, even on the uh, what they call alternative side of things, mm -hmm. which there should be alternative. The, the traditional medicine is amazing, but the 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 preventive side, the most popular things are the biohacking stuff. Mm. And the, and, and the, the super pill of the day or the super nutrient of the day of the super food of the day, that approach fails us over and over and over again. Yeah. So the first thing we have to do as a society say, the way out of this is protracted and, and multilateral. What does that mean? If you eat perfect food, yet don't move and don't yeah. think, your brain will de degenerate. Mm. Or if you're an incredible thinker and push your brain all the time, yet you eat junk food, you'll destroy your brain. Yeah. If you do all of it, yet you don't get sleep, which is the most important eight hours of your day. Mm. Ironic to say that. Yeah. That's where all the cleansing takes place for this incredibly overpowered machine. Three pounds, 2% of body's weight, but consumes 25% of body's energy. It needs a period of time to download yeah. and cleanse. If you don't get sleep, you could be eating the healthiest food. Your brain is going to degenerate. So you have to approach it more complexly around all of these things. And if we accept that concept, now here's the thing, accept that concept, but with the idea that it's not as hard as it sounds, yeah. small incremental measurable changes change your life. Yeah. Accepting small incre incremental measurable changes that you check off. Yeah, gets your yeah. dopamine released, which makes you happy, gets you addicted to the right direction, which is the right kind of addiction. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And I, I loved what you said there about the way that we think about things in a binary way. It's either this or it's that. And yeah. like you say, it's, that's not the way to look at it. We oversimplify it. We choose a path and we go down that path. Um, and I think you're absolutely right, you know, around medication and pharmaceuticals they definitely have their place so to dismiss them out of society is the wrong thing to do and i think that i don't know whether this is the way that humans are wired but we want the quickest and easiest way to a solution don't we and so if if somebody says well just sleep and it ignores all of the other you know areas of of your kind of concept then that's not going to fix it is it but, but on, on the topic of sleep, and this is obviously something which is very popular in the media and everything now, um, you know, tracking your sleep and everything else. I just want to dig into just how important sleep is, because particularly with my audience, you know, dads, they have young children, they have stressful jobs. We all have stressful jobs. We all have busy lives. 
And often amongst a lot of things, sleep is one of the things that we are deprived of because of young children or we don't take as seriously. So can you just kind of highlight some of the key importances of having the sleep and the and the process the brain goes through when we sleep? Oh, my goodness. We could we could <laughs> talk about sleep for, for an hour separately. It's yeah. that important and that exciting. Yeah. Um, like, like Dean said earlier, it's how it's not probably, but I think it's the most important time of the day for the brain. Um, and if you think about it evolutionarily, you know, our body accepted being so vulnerable, unprotected from predators for yeah. seven to eight hours. So it's, it's that important yeah. that the body accepted the fact of just being knocked out and paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, two very important things happen when we sleep. The first thing that happens is our brain consolidates memory. So all of the information that we accumulate from the conversations and the, 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 the you know, the, everything that comes towards us, it gets um, organized in a, in a particular part of the brain. You know, we give the analogy of the information going into files, folders, and cabinets. Yeah. That yeah. happens when we sleep. If it doesn't, <clears throat> if we don't sleep or if we have uh, disjointed sleep and interrupted sleep, the information doesn't get stored. And there are multiple studies that show that when people study and they go to sleep, they tend to do better in tests. They have higher scores and marks. But if they don't sleep, that process of integration of memory of that short-term recall going into long-term recall does not happen at all. Right. And so that's why when people don't sleep, they're um, they're flighty, they uh, are foggy, they, they forget words, they forget names, they go to a room and they don't know why they were there in the room. I think that's probably one of the most common things that happens. Yeah. So it's important to get you know a deep restorative sleep, which I will define later. The second thing that happens when we sleep is our brain cleanses itself. We have a system called the glymphatic system, which is essentially a janitorial system that gets activated when our brain goes through the deeper stages of sleep. It consists of a fluid, lymph fluid, as well as specialized cells that get activated. And they go around the brain and they start collecting all the debris and the byproducts that are created during the day. Remember, the brain is a very, very active organ. It is probably the most active organ. It's the most vascular body uh, organ in our body. And so these these uh, cells and the system, they collect the debris and they get rid of it. If if we don't hit the deeper stages of sleep, there's accumulation of this garbage and this garbage actually creates a perfect ground for amyloid and tau and all these other abnormal proteins to deposit and the brain puts it at uh, puts itself at a higher risk of developing diseases like vascular dementia and alzheimer's disease right and we now know <clears throat> that when people have um long-term uh, poor sleep patterns they actually have higher risk of dementia right and we always use these words dementia and alzheimer's disease but even if people don't develop a disease, they don't really allow their brains to be at its peak shape. Right. And, and what happens is we, we are never in a, in a state where we can actually think better, process information better, um, and be the best versions of who we are. Hmm. Um, and, and so as far as the definition of good sleep is concerned, for an adult, it's seven to eight hours of deep, restorative, uninterrupted sleep. Okay. So meaning going to the bed at the same time and getting up at the same time and not getting up and going to the bathroom all the time. 
um, and allowing for the brain to go through the stages of sleep, which are three stages and then REM sleep. Most of the cleansing and the uh, memory consolidation happens in the deep third stage of sleep. And, uh, you know, as we grow older, that stage shrinks, continues Mm -hmm. to shrink. Um, but there are so many ways that we can implement a healthy lifestyle. We call it sleep hygiene mm. um, to make sure that that stage of sleep remains intact and that our brain has the opportunity to function properly. Yeah. And, and I think the, the sleep hygiene area is something that I'm quite interested in because, you know, it, it, it's almost like your sleep, hi- your, your, your preparation for sleep, at least needs to start eight hours before you decide to go to sleep, right? So some of the things that I talk about is not having caffeine, you know, eight hours before you go to sleep, you know, staying, you know, not eating three hours before you go to bed. So your digestive system will kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, stops and processes. So what yeah. kind of advice would you give around that as a kind of hygiene? Right, right. I, I, you're absolutely right. Our preparation for the night's sleep actually starts the minute we wake up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> when we wake up, And when we expose ourselves to daylight or sunlight, our brain actually starts um, preparing itself to secrete the necessary hormones and chemicals so that our circadian rhythm or our biological clock is set. That's why we think one of the healthiest things to do for a good night's sleep is to take a brisk morning walk because Mm -hmm. your melatonin cycle, melatonin is a chemical that is actually secreted by a gland in our brain called a pineal gland. And the melatonin actually sets our biological clock. And so exposing yourself to daylight right away is very, very important. You know, we are creatures of habit. Our biology Mm -hmm. functions so well when we have a regimented system. So waking up at the same time, sleeping at the same time, like you said, limiting our caffeine intake in the morning, like I am doing right now, it's (laughs) 9 a.m. in the morning, sticking to only one or two cups of coffee, not drinking coffee after 3 p.m. because, you know, it has a very long half-life of about 8 to 12 hours, and it lingers in your system even when you're going to bed getting some exercise done, but not during later stages of the day. Generally speaking, like you said, at least, you know, six to eight hours before going to bed, it's time for the body to start to wind down. So dimming the light, not watching scary movies, not exposing yourself to really, you know, aggressive or energy or stimulating uh, news or activities right before going to bed are some of the key things that help quite a bit. Of course, there are many other factors as well. Yeah. And, and would you mind just touching on a little bit on the various different stages of sleep, the, the deep sleep, the REM sleep and that and how important that is in because we talk about seven to nine hours. Right. But it's also the quality, I think, is important. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. That's the restorative component. So you have phase one, phase two, phase three. In the past, you even had a fourth phase, but they've combined them and then REM sleep. <clears throat> You're. If, when you do EEGs, which is looks at the electrical activity of the brain, your EEG starts changing in first phase, phase one, which is where you get lightheaded and you actually fall asleep. Uh, not lightheaded, you, you get sleepy and fall asleep. And you're, there are certain patterns that start developing even early on. The alpha phase actually goes uh, starts going away. And, and, and then phase two, you actually see these incredible things like Kappa, K-complexes and other things. And then phase three is the deeper stage where actually the, it's much slower delta wave sleep, uh, waves. Um, it's much, much slower in its activity, but much slower doesn't mean that it's not working. Mm. It's just actually working in a different way. 
it's organizing, it's redirecting, it's it's reconnecting. All of these things are happening during that deeper sleep. Cleansing. Cleansing is happening right. during there. In fact, as, as Aisha was saying, in one study, they showed that when people didn't get good sleep, these, these glial cells start eating away from good brain tissue right, right. and the wow. brain actually shrunk. So all of that is happening during the deeper sleep. And then the REM sleep, that's where the dreaming happens. That's where a lot of other processes of brain function happen. So um, they're critical. They're central to our existence. <clears throat> they're central to our continued growth of our brain and cognition. So people think that as you get older, you're supposed to actually get slower. There are seven, six domains, and it depends on how you look at it, of cognition. There's memory, short and long term. There's uh, attention and focus. There's visual spatial. There's motor, idiomotor. There is um, uh, language. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, so all these different domains of cognition and and all of them change differently as we get older, but they don't have to degenerate as we live now. They do. Yeah. We know that the brain starts shrinking in your yeah. 20s. Yeah. I actually say the path less traveled. So you can eat in your 20s. You can either choose to actually continue to grow your brain capacity or degenerate. Yeah. Literally those two paths. And the majority population is going towards degeneration because not many people are eating healthy. In fact, the American Heart Association showed that only 0.3% of Americans eat healthy. And that's wow. by eight American Heart Association standard, which is not the optimal standard. <laughs> and as far as movement, we're moving less and less and less. Yeah. As far as stress, I don't need to tell you about stress no. and our management of stress. As far as sleep, terrible. I mean- yeah. 40% of Americans and most of the world for that matter, take sleep medications. Again, we're not against sleep medication for short term, but it yeah. shouldn't be a standard for the rest of your life. No. And as far as mental activity, keeping your brain challenged, we, we think that, you know, candy crushes brain development. Candy <laughs> crushes not brain development. I don't know if they have candy cane in the UK. Can, but candy crushes yeah. worldwide. Yeah, we do. Unfortunately, yeah. we do. <laughs> And, 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 or, um, like Sudoku, that's great, but, yeah. but we don't do the things that need to be done to maintain your health, brain health, which is when you retire or as you get older, yeah. you're supposed to now build your brain around your passions. Yeah. Those passions actually grow more of neuronal connections than you can imagine. That's the yeah. cognitive activity. That's the right. old part yeah. of neuro where, so all the, the old part of the neuro, the optimizing is so profound. Yeah. If 87 billion neurons and each of them can make a couple of connections right. or as many as 30,000 connections. Wow. And those connections are what's important. And guess what? Those connections are under our control for all of our life. Yeah. We can make billions of connections at any age by pushing our brain around our passions. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that whole area to me, again, is super, super fascinating because the, the kind of parallels that I draw is, say, for example, we're doing physical exercise and we are lifting weights and we're building muscle. It's the same thing with the brain almost in so, in so much as if you use your brain and tax your brain in areas that you perhaps haven't done before. My understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it will create new circuits in the brain and in areas that perhaps you haven't had those circuits before. Well, I, I, I tell you, it's actually, no, it's not like muscle. It okay. blows okay. the muscle out of the water. I mean, the biggest guy you know is three times bigger than he could be. Actually, not three times, probably twice. 
Yeah. If he could have been 120 pounds under normal conditions, he will be 220 pounds uh, of muscle. I'm talking about muscle. Yeah. Um, so muscle can go twice as much or maybe two and a half times as much. Right. Well, our neurons can make 15,000 times more connections. <laughs> that's crazy. That's that's that puts incredible Hulk to shame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, you like I said, each neuron can make a few connections mm. or as many as 30,000 connections. Yeah. That's yeah. exponential greater power. That's exponential greater resilience, plasticity. What does that mean? That means that each neuron that's making tens of thousands of connections, let's say that you have a head trauma. Right. Well, some right. of those are severed. Okay. Let's say you had a mini stroke. Some of them are severed. Let's say you had a bad night where you had too much alcohol. Some of them are severed. But you still have thousands of con connections still maintaining that, that connectivity so you never lose that memory. Right, that's right. literally uh, plasticity and, and, and resilience. Resilience, yeah. plasticity is the growth part. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, if you don't challenge your brain, you've never challenged your brain throughout your life. In fact, by the way, people who have not challenged their brain either because of lower education or lower challenge mm -hmm. are at the highest risk for dementia and Alzheimer's. Wow, okay. Yeah, at the highest risk. So it's critical to challenge your brain around your passions throughout your life, but especially as you get older and older, push your brain, enjoy that push, enjoy it across multiple domains, take classes that you could never take before. Right. Now, yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, start a musical instrument that you could never play before. Now, yeah. Yeah. Um, get, you know, get in talks, uh, you know, doing these kind of talks is challenging because I have yeah. to read your face. I have to read the audience's face if, when there's an audience. Yeah. I have yeah. to adapt. I have to emotionally adjust, I have to linguistically adjust, I have to cognitively adjust. Those make connections. And those connections are not just for that activity. They create the highways that will be used for future similar activities. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's so important, isn't it? Because I think we evolve in society to be comfortable, don't we? We want to get to a certain level in life. And when we get there, we comfort and it's almost like we sit and we, and we kind of sit at that level. Whereas what yeah. you're saying is that if you do that, just be aware that you are at a heightened risk of potentially, you know, contracting some kind of neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's and things like that. But yeah. what I wanted to go back to is your acronym, your neuro acronym, because obviously we spoke about sleep. But then for me, if you don't sleep properly, that then has this snowball effect. Right. So it's then go then moves on to nutrition. And what I mean by that is that if you are sleep deprived and you are fatigued, you then unconsciously. And again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, start to reach for things which will kind of pick you up that will kind of give you that kind of stimulation. So where does that then, where does then sleep follow on into your, into nutrition? Oh, that's a very important question and a concept. You're absolutely right. So when we don't sleep, um, we don't have the tools to make better decisions, do we? Um, sleep determines that sharpness um, right, and right. the gives us the capacity to make decisions, critical decisions about our day-to-day -day habits. And when we're sleep deprived, first of all, you forget about accumulating information or processing information. Our body goes into a self-protective and a preventive or damage control mode. And in right. damage control mode, your hormones and your neurochemistry is all over the place. 
And you literally are in a state where you feel that you're under attack by a predator. So the right. way the way we act and the way we make choices is by, for example, when it comes to food, we go towards high energy, um, you know, high calorie foods because our brain and our body's telling us you need all that calorie to stay sharp and stay active. So we don't make good decisions of getting high nutrient foods. We basically go towards calorie. That's yeah. why our consumption of things like candies, donuts, cakes, and high sugary food just, you yeah. know, increases significantly when we're sleep deprived. Second, you know, our body goes into a preservation mode. We don't want to expend energy. So we become very sedentary. It affects our emotions. We become very aggressive. We become yep. very upset. And so the conversations and interactions with human beings fall apart as well. And when you look at the chemical side of things, you know, there are things specifically like ghrelin um, and other hormones that mm -hmm. get activated. And it actually literally affects our hunger and satiety centers in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so instead of, you know, needing food or eating food that is good for our body to function, we actually go towards foods that we don't necessarily need, but they're high energy. And yeah. that completely, you know, um, messes up the cycle. Interestingly enough, when we're sleep deprived, we go towards food that keeps us awake. So that actually affects our sleep pattern even further. So it becomes a very negative spiral. And mm -hmm. uh, we start damaging our brain and our body when we're sleep deprived. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's why I use the analogy of the snowball effect. But specifically, when we're talking about processed foods and ultra processed foods and the sugar content, what kind of I, I, because I know sugar is talked about in the context of it's bad for our health. And we're talking about that from the perspective of weight. But what what kind of damage does these these um, man made sugars and sugars in general have on the brain? Yeah, I think it's important to note that the brain's preferred fuel is glucose. Um, okay. I think the word glucose, sugar, carbohydrates, they're a little misunderstood. Carbohydrates yeah. are not bad. It's the type of carbohydrate that matters, right? I mean, sweet potatoes are carbohydrates. They're carbohydrates on all kinds of fruits and vegetables, and they're phenomenal. So in its complex form, it's, it's wonderful. They're not, they're not bad, and our brain actually prefers glucose for it to function properly. It's the added extensive amount of refined carbohydrates added to our diet that are causing the problem. And you know, we, our brain and our body does not need too much glucose. It only needs a particular yeah. amount provided to it in, in a silver spoon over a protracted period of time. But unfortunately in our lives, the way the foods are designed and created, they, they concentrate a lot of processed sugar or refined yeah, yeah. carbohydrates in a very small, dense packet. And so when we consume that, our brain goes into a frenzy because mm. it doesn't know what to do with all that excess sugar. And so, you know, our pancreas, our liver, our biological system starts to process that in, uh, that that amount of sugar but a lot of times and over you know as we grow older it fails to do so and so all that extra glucose the fat the sh the salts that are added into processed foods they start damaging mm -hmm. our brain cells right and you know there's a condition called insulin resistance which means that the brain is not able to consume glucose and insert it into the cell to be able to be used as fuel 
And no matter you know what our glucose metabolism looks like, even if people don't have diabetes or pre-diabetes, the insulin resistance actually affects our cognition. There was a research paper that Dean and I actually wrote this paper a couple of years ago, and we saw that when people had high insulin resistance, yeah. they yeah. had lower cognitive state, which means that they couldn't really absorb information properly. They couldn't think properly. They couldn't decide properly. Yeah. And so it, yeah really important to avoid refined carbohydrates but there's nothing wrong with consuming um you know complex carbohydrates in the in the form of whole grains nuts seeds yeah. uh vegetables and fruits yeah and i find that that's kind of the biggest misconception isn't it around carbohydrates it's almost comes back to what dean was saying before around we take one path and we think that that's the right path so much as we mustn't eat carbohydrates no, you need carbohydrates. The body's primary fuel source is carbohydrates. Correct. So we, Correct. We, you know, we need that. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you is there's a lot of discussion around fat. And obviously we know that the kind of the, the vegetable fats and things like that, that are not good for us. But where do things like omega-3 fats and things like that come into how, we, how the brain uses them and, and what's good for the brain? So the, the, the concept that the brain is made of fat, therefore we need fat is, is wrong. Okay. Period. Um, the brain has a little bit more fat than the rest of the body because of the myelin sheet around the nerves. Yes, that's great. Uh, but all cells are a lipid bilayer. They're a fat. Also, okay. the one difference in the brain is that it doesn't have storage fat. You don't see globs of fat as a storage in the brain. There is no storage fat. And every other kind of fat that you, the brain needs, it produces. We have the body produces plenty. Okay. The one type of fat it needs is omega-3s, DHA, right. you know, it, it needs that. We just finished two papers that are, that are about to be published, um, uh, uh, two major comprehensive reviews. One is omega-3 in the developing brain and omega-3 and the aging brain. The data is not perfect. More work needs to be done. But, uh, but the trends show that in the developing brain, you really need to be very cognizant of omega-3 and getting more omega-3, whether it's through supplements or being more cognizant of the, of the food you're eating. Mm. And the same thing as the brain is aging or even going through some, some uh, challenges like MCI, pre-dementia and things of that nature, definitely that's when, when you have to be extra aware. In the middle, there isn't enough data uh, and, 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 and the brain has enough reserve that they, the research has not been able to show things. But I think that... The fact that we haven't seen it, but we see the, the trends on these two ends, I think even in the middle, that might be a benefit, but we don't have the data. So we have to be accurate about what we do have. Yeah. What do, so there, there's the, the answer. Omega-3 is what we need. Now, omega-3 doesn't have to come from meat or from fish, right. uh, although the data on, although we are, we are saying that there's no data. In fact, there's positive data that meat is bad for the brain, but there's no data on fish being bad for the brain. Okay. Literally, really, there is not. But we ourselves don't consume and our kids don't consume fish because we worry about the fact that the amount of mercury and lead, which is their concentrators, yeah. it's not studied well. And then the 3000 other chemicals or more, three or more thousand chemicals that are added into the water systems of these fish that are consumed are never investigated. So we worry that we don't look at that long term. Mm. So, so, so the only benefit that we see in fish, that's the only meat, seems to be omega-3. So where does the fish get its omega-3? Algae. Right. So if you can get alternative sources of omega-3, get alternative sources of omega-3. Omega now, plant-only people have to be extra cognizant. Yes, mm. 
chia and flaxseed have a significant higher proportion. In fact, four to one, one of the few foods where the omega-3 is higher than omega, omega-6. Um, but it's in an ALA form. The right. conversion of ALA to DHA is not perfect. 15%, 10%, 8%, depending on the person and all that. But it's still plenty. You have one or two tablespoons of uh, 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 chia or flaxseed or walnuts, you're fine. But you have to be cognizant to lower your omega-6 in that situation. Why? Right. Because they compete for the same enzyme. Okay. But, but reducing your omega-6 levels makes sense anyway. Right. Because in the 20th century, the one revolution has been sugar, too much sugar, mm-hmm. and profound amounts of omega-6 in our diet, which right. was not normal. And omega-6 is primarily found in processed foods. Okay. Um, you know, cutting down processed foods is probably one of the easiest things to do for people, yeah. you know, yeah. practically speaking, because in one felt swoop, you get rid of omega-6s and unhealthy fats, saturated fats, trans fatty acids. These are all the fats that cause inflammation and you right. know, thick the arteries, salt, processed sugar, refined carbohydrates. So in and a bunch you know, of chemicals that we don't even know what they do. Yeah. I think yeah. if we all if we all had, you know, one statement to make as far as public health is concerned, that would tremendously affect our brain health and yeah. health in general would be to get rid of processed foods. And I, I wanted to add an, uh, one other practical thing about fats. You know, not all fats are bad, like Dean said, you know, yeah. polyunsaturated fats that are derived from, um, you know, plant sources such as extra virgin olive oil right. or avocado oil. Those are healthy. They've been associated with better brain health, mm-hmm. but saturated fats that are found in, say, butter or lard or trans fatty acids, found in, uh, such, yeah, in, in processed foods and even coconut oil. Yeah, That's we friends over that. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, can be unhealthy because it's a, it's a major source of saturated fats, just like butter. Yeah, that that's very interesting because, again, the whole discussion around coconut oil and butter is one which is that we should have it uh, and it's very healthy for us. But I think it's like a lot of things, right? It's moderation. Uh, and and it's it's not kind of over again coming back to dean's point about going down one path this is great so we're just going to go on this path it's having balance isn't it yeah i think it's important as healthcare providers and people who are in the realm of public health to be honest with uh, the public we always say you know the ideal is to eat lots and lots of plants and get rid of saturated fats and refined carbohydrates, salt and sugar. But we understand where people are in their journey and we should never ever expect people to go towards perfection right away. But I think the public, they deserve to know what the ideal is. And then it's our job to make sure that we provide the resources and help them make better decisions. Um, we're not very fond of the word motivation as a matter of or moderation, mo- or moderate moderation, okay. because they're not very, um, they're not very, they're not valuable when it comes to action oriented decision making, okay. you know, moderation for me, uh, 18 years ago was eating, you know, three Kit Kat bars instead of four, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Uh, uh, we're behavioral neurologists and habit doctors. I mean, we, we develop habits at community levels, thousands of people. If we said moderation, that is translated in every possible range of a spectrum you can imagine. That's not useful. It's a, it's right. a catchy word. I think we should say, this is the optimal, as Aisha said, and your journey is identify what's good and bad and 
find one behavior, one item that you want to change and change it in a measurable time-bound way. So identify processed sugar in your diet. Okay, right. great. How much? We really underestimate our, mm -hmm. our, our consumption of processed sugar because we think about just added sugar. No, look at the, any contained food in a container or a box or anything. They've added sugar because they're smart. They know that sugar and fat are addictive food. They're survival foods. Yeah. Survival yeah. foods do not are not thriving foods. So identify how much sugar. Then you say for the next six, so the SMART goals, specific, measurable, yeah. achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Specific, it's sugar. I've identified it. I know where it is in my diet, where I get it on a daily basis. Um, M is measurable. I'm going to reduce it by 50%, either by days, Mondays, Wednesdays, and, and Fridays, I'm not going to eat uh, sugar, uh, at least for this period of time. Yeah. A is achievable. Can I do that? Yeah. I'm not going to change my whole diet all wholesale. No. Yeah. Is it relevant? Yes. Relevant is important. If a, if a behavior is aligned with your ultimate goal, it's more likely to stick. Yeah. And time bound. I'm going to do this for two months because sugar is tough. Mm. Sugar is not, I'm going to do 21 days and my behavior has changed. No. Yeah. Two months. So that's a smart goal. Right. Once you've done that, your taste buds change, yeah. your behavior yeah. changes, and then you go to maybe 100% or to something else. Mm -hmm. Then you say saturated fat. Truly identify sources of your saturated fat, be it meats, cheeses, butters, added fats, whatever it is, and say, for now, I'm going to take one food item specifically, achievably, measurably. That's so much more helpful than moderation. So that's why we, we, we want... If we truly want to make a difference in people's lives, we have to give them meaningful words. Otherwise, we're just sitting around and talking. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective, actually, on the word moderation. It's something that I've not considered before, but I think it's, yeah, it's really poignant and it's very, very interesting. I think, um, yeah, it's probably not the greatest word, but I think balance perhaps is, is slightly better. Um, but I, I just want to go on to, for the, to the, next, the next letter in your acronym, which is exercise. Um, because obviously exercise is something that we all gravitate towards when we decide we want to get healthy, right? Um, my view on it is that we should look at nutrition first, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, but I just want to understand from your, you guys perspective on just how important exercise is relating to what we've been talking about and brain health. Uh, just building on words that are useful and not useful. I'm going to get to actually an exercise related to that is the word um, motivation. Okay. Uh, motivation is an arrogant, non-actionable word again. I mean, I'm mm. a, the two of us were raised in a way where that was inculcated in our life yeah. and we impose our motivational scheme onto others. It's not just arrogant, it's dumb. Okay. Again, another dumb word. So we yeah. have to make sure that we use words that are actionable, meaningful. One day I wake up and I'm not motivated. Then what do I do? Where do <laughs> yeah. I find the mo motivational yeah. box on my shelf? I can't. Yeah. Better than that is actionable behaviors towards your goal that actually turn on the dopamine. Yes. When you do that measurably and you know what that is, and when you do it several times, that becomes motivation. Yeah, that becomes a intrinsic mechanism motivation that's based in your basal ganglia. It is so right. powerful instead yeah. of the word motivation. Exercise is actually the easiest way to build motivation and the beginning of a healthy life. Why? Mm -hmm. Whereas sleep takes a while to create that habit of positive, you know, sleep. 
exercise gives you that boost right away. Yeah. A brisk morning exercise of 25 minutes, it's measurable. You know you did it. Afterwards, there's a physiological change. You actually associate that with positive because that's what, why you took the steps. That actually checks off the dopamine. That actually physiologically increases your cortisol, right. increases your adrenaline, lowers your melatonin. There's nothing more motivational as a core behavior than exercise that's measurable, achievable, and does that. And a brisk walk in the morning does that. In fact, when we start a, a health program in a community, we started around a brisk walk. Yeah. I know that everybody can't do that because there are balance issues and other issues. Yeah. And we find alternatives. But for those who can, that's a primary central core behavior to build around. Because as the response is quick, you feel it physiologically, you feel it psychologically, the dopamine and the serotonin, it is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think the, the other, and this is interesting. I was talking to someone about this today around walking because we really underestimate the powerfulness of just going on a walk, right? I think we've, as we've evolved, we, we move around in cars, you know, and on all the rest of it. And just going on a simple, simple walk is so profound because not just for the, the physical exercise, but for the mind as well. So just as you're walking, just being aware of your surroundings and appreciating where you are from a calming the mind, quieting the mind is just profound. And, but it sounds so crazy, right? When you talk to people about just go for a walk, right? They just don't seem to understand. They think, well, it's just simple. We do that every day. I love that. We always say, uh, you know, a simple walk, um, especially in the morning, is one of the best health measures um, you know, from a public health perspective, um, you set your circadian rhythm, like I said, you get right. your body ready to go to sleep. It's uh, it's exercise for your body because our bodies were made to move. We were not made to sit be behind a desk and be on Zoom meetings all day long. Yeah. And it also is a wonderful way to meditate, to relieve yeah. anxiety and stress, right. to reconnect with nature, which in itself is one of the most beautiful things we can do for our health and for our mind health specifically. And just generally to be you know, active because when you walk, there's better blood flow to the brain, there's movement in your muscles. And I, I completely agree with you. It's one of the best things we can do. We just yeah. uh, published a paper um, that's kind of coming out um, as, as the, the core lifestyle paper in the American um, um, Family Medicine Journal. It's a huge journal. We are kind of proud of that. And in that, we actually cited a paper by, uh, from Harvard. Now, this is mind-blowing. A brisk walk. Brisk walk, though, not just a leisurely walk, which is fine as well, but don't call it exercise. That's meditation, and that's good. But yeah. a brisk yeah. walk, 25 minutes a day for a protracted period of time, reduced your, this is a Harvard study, reduced your chance of Alzheimer's by? Go on. 45%. That's just a brisk walk. Yeah. Why, why is nobody talking about this? Because yeah. there's no money to be made. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. No, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing, right? I think the other side of it, and again, you all know the science behind this, but as humans, I find that we love to go to the complicated, right? Where, mm. and we ignore the simple. And a lot of the stuff that we've spoken about today around prevention is simple stuff, right? And right. I think that's the biggest takeaway is that just doing the simple stuff can be quite profound. Um, yeah. So, so look, guys, I, I could, we, we haven't gone through the other 
three uh, letters in the acronym, which I would love to do, but I'm just conscious of time. We've been, we've been going for an hour and I genuinely appreciate you coming on and um, sharing this with me. I find it fascinating. Like I said, I'm not at the level you guys are, but I'm just trying to share in part of that information with, with the audience. So, but before I let you go, guys, is there, how can people connect with you? Where can they find out more stuff and all that kind of stuff? We so appreciate you inviting us to your fantastic podcast. And I tell you, Darren, I think your job and, you know, uh, outlets that share health information with the general public is is far more important than all these scientific papers coming out in the echo chambers of, you know, scientific societies. They're 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 important. But I think it's about time we created venues and channels for all that, you know, amazing information to be shared and be translatable. You know, yeah, what does yeah. that even mean? All of the science that's happening and you're doing that. So we're grateful to you and thank you for inviting you, us. Man. We're pretty active on social media and on the web. We are Shares IMD, Shares IMD on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Um, we have a community called the Brain Health Revolution, where uh, it's a closed group where people, uh, you know, support each other. They, we have okay. cooking sessions and live podcasts and conversations around brain health and living a brain healthy life. That's on MightyNetworks.co. Right. So, okay. so, so we, yes. So we would love to connect with people and, uh, you know, provide them many and all information on brain health. And then yeah. we also have a uh, podcast called Brain Health Revolution. Um, so if people want to hear, um, that would be great as well. Oh, and also yep. we, we, we've written books and our, our first book was called the Alzheimer's solution. And the second one was the 30 day Alzheimer's solution, which is essentially a lifestyle book with some recipes in it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, we'll put all of the links in the show notes below so people can check out and, and look at all that good stuff. But yeah, I'd love to speak to you again in the future, guys. I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been a great conversation. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. It was we wonderful. Like, look, we look forward to it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fitter Healthier Dad podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe. And I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. All the links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes. And a full transcription is over at fitterhealthierdad.com.